so good to be here and for me to be able to be with Paul and Paige, who are my friends. It's really lovely, so thank you. And I get to speak this evening about something that's really close to my heart. And I don't think it's possible for this evening's lecture and Friday's lecture to be more different. Is that, is that the right way of saying it? So tonight is an essay. And I remember when Paul was in my class, Alex was in my class, we'd talk about essays. And the great thing about an essay is it is not the final word. It's a try. It's where you explore ideas in a free way without feeling constrained by having to be perfect. So this, what I'm sharing this evening, is close to my heart, and it's very much an essay. It's exploring an idea, and I love the way you framed this evening in terms of a conversation. I really do hope that we can talk about this material, we can think about it together. What can we learn from time? That's one of my questions. How can a sense of location in time influence the way we live? How can it influence the way we pray? How can it influence our academic disciplines, our scholarship, how we go about our work in an intellectual environment? Does time itself have a pedagogy? If so, what is it? And why does it matter? These are some of the questions I want us to dig into. Now, I'm a historian. I need to say that again straight away. So time is my trade. But it's actually only been really recently, through the provocation of students at Regent, when I started to think about time and my subject in an interconnected way and to bring those together with my own faith in Jesus Christ. And to ask questions, not just about the Christian content of my material as a historian, but questions about some of the underlying pedagogies, the modes in which we do a subject, the meanings, the philosophy of my subject, and to bring those together with my faith. What does it mean for me as a Christian to have a historical consciousness? to have a sense of time. We're going to use that word sense quite a bit this evening. And what does it mean for me as a teacher of history to develop and cultivate and nurture a historical consciousness in others, in the classroom? Pope Francis makes a provocative statement about time in his collection of homilies from the Vatican. And I want to read this quote slowly probably read it twice, because in a way, this talk is really, it came from Pope Francis' comments about time and my gurgitations, meditations, ponderings on it. A Christian without memory is not a true Christian, but only halfway there. Such a man or such a woman is a prisoner of the moment who doesn't know how to treasure his or her history and doesn't know how to read it and to live it as part of salvation history. I'm going I'm to read it again, because it's a tricky quote. A Christian without memory is not a true Christian, but only halfway there. Such a man or such a woman is a prisoner of the moment, who doesn't know how to treasure his or her history, and doesn't know how to read it and to live it as part of salvation history. I think this quote 
goes right to the heart of our postmodern predicament. I think we have a problem with time. And that's what I want us to dig into. And there are two dimensions that Pope Francis pulls out in time. Loss of memory and our captivity to the present moment. I think those are interrelated, but they're also distinct. And this is really the cultural landscape that I want to suggest we need to recover a spirituality of time against. But let me start, as historians always do, with the context. Please forgive me. You know, some of you guys actually know me, so you know how much I love Bob Dylan. And I think Bob Dylan's epic, The Times They Are A-Changing, 1964, that album, and I'm in agreement with some other historians on this, that is a turning point in culture. But Dylan's title track there, The Times They Are A-Changing, they're important. Because what Dylan does in the song, The Times They Are A-Changing, as the present now will later be past, the order is rapidly fading, the times they are a-changing. He's speaking to his parents' generation. He's speaking to a generation pre-civil rights. A generation that he's arguing need to get out of the way in order to let another generation rise. And what he's really arguing here is the past is an impediment to the future. And it's necessary for a new future to develop, to get away, to sweep away the past. But what went with this idea is the belief that the future, to be free, needs to free itself from deference to the past. The future needs to stand on its own. It needs to be cut loose from its heritage and from the effects of time. And nearly six decades later, what we have, I think, in contemporary Western culture is a history gap. And it's a very particular kind of history gap. You could argue that every age has a history gap. But our postmodern history gap is, I think, very, very specific. And as postmoderns, we treat with deep scepticism any identity-forming stories that are handed down to us from one generation to the next. It was wonderful the way we just prayed from generation to generation. But postmodern culture, in its mode of operation, in its philosophy, in its basic posture, understands itself aside from that which has passed on. And as our bodies have literally been lifted out of geographical and social places of belonging, so our sense of identity has been lifted out of time as well as space. And our identities, at least at the level of identity formation, have become, I think, practically, philosophically self-referential. And I would call this, I, I, I want to call this endemic presentism presentism. We are, as Pope Francis says, without memory. I think philosopher Charles Taylor is talking about the same thing when he describes in his book Sources of the Self the protracted existential dilemma of the 21st century self as a profound identity crisis. He says, an acute form of disorientation which people express in terms of not knowing who they are. Without a sense of location in time, identity is impeded. 
and with it our sense of direction. I think we lose coherent meaning relationally, spiritually and politically. So George Orwell, good old animal farm, but also a highly astute political commentator, the quickest way to destroy a people, he wrote, is to obliterate their sense of history. I really like that word sense. I was thinking about it this morning. It's not quite the same as getting rid of knowledge about history, so obliterating from people's minds any facts and dates that they might have been stuffed into them in a classroom. But the sense of history, that's, that word is very helpful because it actually means more than simply knowledge. It's about perception. It's about our sensitivity to time and past and present. Our rootedness, our rootlessness, rather, I think also makes us memoryless. That's something I need to do more research in. But my argument would be as we're uprooted, so our memories are uprooted. And a loss of memory, in turn, compounds that sense of rootlessness that we have in place and in space. And we need to know where we've come from in order to know who we are and where we're going. And this is true for the individual, but it's also true for whole societies. Identity is at the root of moral action, and it's at the root of political imagination, design. It's the starting point for how we create a vision of the common good, for instance. And without it, we're cut adrift we're like a ship, says Lord Acton, the historian. We're like a ship without a compass, tossed around in the sea, unable to fix our position. And for the postmodern, identity formations become a facet of individualism. Now, I should explain what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to put out an argument to connect some things, and then we're going to loop back round to exploring that in relation to our own lives. So kind of go with me because it may sound a bit abstract, but I'm just putting some steps in the ground to create some language that we can use for our conversation. That's where I'm going. So for the postmodern, I'm arguing, identity formation has become a facet of individualism. And so it is integrally related to that sacred belief that we all know about, where the individual has the right to define and create who he or she is, irrespective of the givenness of the past, your location in time, my environment, my socio-political culture, and increasingly in the hyper-subjectivity of the last five to seven years, irrespective of one's physical materiality or biological givenness. And I believe that that idea, I am what I choose to be, is integrally connected to this endemic present in presentism. And I'm not quite sure which one causes the other, but I know that they're together as part of the same mentality that I'm trying to describe. We define ourselves over and against the idea that history, my history, your history, our history, tells me or you what we should be. Walter Brueggemann puts it like this, our consumer culture is organised against history. There's a depreciation of memory, 
a ridicule of hope, which means that everything must be held in the now. Now, this distinctive postmodern way of, ident of creating identity is deeply linked to the values of consumerism. So in our advanced capitalist society, we form our identity through the acquisition of symbolic tokens. Actually, we buy them. And many, if not most, of the objects that we acquire in order to furnish ourselves with identities are literally designed for obsolescence. They change within a decade. Well, decade, that's a really long period of time. A month? Perish the thought of an iPhone 6 when the iPhone 7 is there. Do you see what I'm saying? They're designed for obsolescence. And postmodern identities, as they're linked to symbolic tokens, are also fluid and shifting. Let me use another phrase. They're timed, not timeless. We might even call them disposable. Now, academics, we have a different way of talking about commodification. We um, don't mind if we have a bashed-up iPhone. In fact, where I come from, the more bashed-up your iPhone is, the more it is a symbol of how incredibly earnestly intellectual you are. <laughs> if it's got masking tape on it, whoa, whoa, you're a philosopher. Everyone must take notice of. But we have our own versions of commodification. We just call it staying on top of our field. We engage in the art of knowledge acquisition. We acquire knowledge to become masters of our specialisms. We acquire knowledge to get the necessary identity credentials to signal our command of information to keep our position in the educational food chain. Now, most academics find it quite difficult to talk about that. And when personhood is bound up with acquisition of any kind, be it knowledge or material objects, we condemn ourselves to... I had to think a long time about this word. We condemn ourselves to restlessness. I think that's the chief characteristic of our culture. We are restless. We become, in the words of Pope Francis, prisoners of the moment. It is a very heavy weight to be responsible for the invention and creation of our own identities, our unique identities, especially when we're meant to do that autonomously outside our own geographical com um, communities normally, using a moral guide and an ethical framework which is bound up with our own internal preferences. It is incredibly complex and difficult, and it's actually no wonder that decision-making is crippling in our culture. Actually, vocational decision-making is fraught with anxiety for many of us. And sociologists have begun to point to this elongation of adolescence in our society. Of course, adolescence, or any grouping of an age, is one way that we signify how we understand time and divide it up. Childhood is a quantity of time. But sociologists are talking about adolescence elongating itself, so that once upon a time in your 20s you worked out who you were and what you wanted to do, but actually now the 30s are also enveloped in this kind of existential preamble 
that we work out who we are and what we want to do before we really get started on the absolute stuff of life and make commitments to place, person, and so on. And in the gap between self-discovery and actual living, we incur vast debts. And it's interesting to think about how debt relates to how we perceive time. We might want to weave that into our conversation. And meanwhile, in that kind of gap of time, we delay committed relationships, and we delay commitment to places. We move around in order to acquire these different aspects of identity. Taylor links this shift in cultural mood. I like the way Taylor uses the word mood. It's a good word. He links it to a loss of horizon. That's an interesting word too, in which people's sense of the cosmos and their place within it as an ordered place has got dissipated. We lose that sense of horizon and locatedness in it. Now, this kind of identity formation doesn't actually have any resilience in the face of suffering. This is really moving towards the main argument I want to make about time. Because our society, in telling us that our choices are unlimited, which our society does, and that unfettered choice is the means to human flourishing, and that to have one's choices restricted by anybody else is to dehumanise, that kind of society isn't that great at helping us cope with limitation. And when we find out that, in fact, our choices are limited, we are unprepared for the profound powerlessness that we experience. The kind of powerlessness we experience when we want to get married and we find that that desire is eluded. We want to have children, and we can't. And finding out that, in fact, the choices we have are limited is startling and disturbing in a culture which doesn't prepare us for that. And when we create an environment, as we do in our culture, that choosing what we desire is the very essence of what it means to be human, then words like limitation, givenness, contentment, patience, and I'll talk about patience a bit more, they're really problematic words for us culturally, really problematic. And limitation is something that we insure against and we medicate to prevent. And if we experience it, we hide it. And we not only find, this is all doom and gloom, it isn't all doom and gloom because we have a saviour in all of this and that's the great thing. But keep going with me. We also find that the choices that we do make are also more difficult to live with in a cultural environment that is teaching us that our choices are unlimited. What I mean by that is we become so accustomed to unlimited choice that we no longer know how to live with the choices that we do make, the kind of death do us part, part choices, where marriage is actually simply the gift of time, unconditional time that we covenant to give to another person. Those choices we are not inducted into living through by our culture. The liturgies of our culture militate against 
those kinds of limitations. Marriage is a limitation. Friendship is a limitation. Belonging to a church is a limitation. A vocation is a limitation. So what can we do about it? How can we recover our memory and how can we actually free ourselves from this tyranny that I think Francis is talking about, this tyranny of the moment? And if you, if you don't remember anything else about this evening, which is absolutely fine, just remember one word, because I want to put one word in the middle of the room. And that word is finitude. Finitude. And I just want to suggest that it's a really, really good word. A really good word. And I wonder if it isn't a word we need to write over the nations at the moment, because it means this. I mean, it's not a word we use very often. It sounds quaintly Victorian. So I, you always have to look words like that up. But it actually means the state of having limits and bounds. So you put that against what I've just been talking about in terms of postmodern ident uh, post identity formation. And it's an important word. Time teaches us finitude. That, if you like, is the pedagogy of time. We get old. Our bodies do deteriorate. We do die. Ageing is arguably the most important issue in Western culture right now. How do I age well? How do I teach others to age well? Birth, loss, grief, separation, creation, the perennials in my garden, the seasons, the rhythms of light and dark, warmth, cold, Old places, new places, all of these things speak very gently to us of finitude. All of them militate in their own quiet, rhythmic way against postmodern identity culture that marries us to the moment. And as an idea, I think finitude stands at odds with the unlimited choice model. And it stands in stark contrast to the commodification of personhood that we've been talking about here. In Isaiah, a quote which is then picked up in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, human finitude gets centralised. I love this passage of scripture. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. That's a quote from a passage which starts with comfort my people. Isaiah, we know that. Thanks to good old handle. Comfort my people. How on earth is finitude actually comfort? And I think that if we will let it, discovering deeply our finitude can reorder our sense of locatedness in time. The passage that we ju I just quoted there is based on contrast, grass and flowers, fall, fade. But the word of God stands forever. And I do believe 
that an awareness of finitude in our lives, actually in our culture too, can lead us to an awareness of God himself. But why not to nihilism? It can lead to nihilism. It can lead to a deep sense of insignificance. I'm finite, it doesn't really matter what I do. And Isaiah 40 is just so glorious, all in the pronouns. It's all in the pronouns. It's the our God. The word of our God is right there at the centre between a contrast of finitude and infinitude, between the temporal and the eternal. Our God, the God who speaks, the God who communicates, my God, the God of my salvation, the God that I cry out to, our God. And word is necessarily relational, speaks. And that turns what could be nihilistic into something which is actually at the very centre of our reality. Colin Gunton, in his book, The One, The Three, and The Many, talks about how time itself, the sequential nature of time, the sequential nature of things, such that all of reality doesn't collapse in on itself into a single moment, that temporality is itself the gift of a relational Trinitarian God. The very nature of time, holding up time, being in time speaks to us of God. And of course that word reminds us immediately of Logos, of Jesus, who in time dignifies time with infinite meaning through the incarnation. He, in, he reconnects the transcendent and the imminent in his body, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And he links the temporal and the eternal in Pope Francis' language, salvation history. And his history and our history weave together with the history of the people of God. And recognition of our finitude, I believe, also does something else which is extraordinarily counterintuitive in one way. It leads not to a sense of our insignificance, but rather to a sense of our significance. Because actually to believe in our finitude is also to give man significance in time. It is to make the particularity of the moment extraordinarily and miraculously important. <coughs> You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honour. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. And human beings, I, th I think we are made to know where we stand in time. We were made to have a horizon. We were made to see a horizon and to navigate by it. And I think when we recognise our finitude... We reposition ourselves in time. We reorientate around that horizon. And we see something utterly remarkable, that our dignity as persons isn't dependent fundamentally on what we acquire or what we do. In fact, our dignity, our worth, our value, that happens before we even set foot in time in our createdness in God. And at the centre, of course, is Jesus himself 
the same yesterday, today and forever. And I'm using my hands there because I love that. Yesterday, today, forever. It's spatial. It's temporal. It's extraordinarily like that kind of horizon I'm talking about. And he holds together in himself all things. Things created, things seen, things unseen, things in heaven and on earth, things outside time and in time. He holds it. And all things hold together in Christ. And we worship a God who's constant through time. So what I'm arguing here is that seeing our finitude is a key to living with intentional focus in the present. And the kinds of symbolic tokens that epitomize this kind of interweaving of material consumption and human identity in our culture, they link us to what is fleeting. And they very easily distract us from the significance of our finite experience in time. I think we become just like Caliban in Shakespeare's The Tempest. Remember that story? The trinkets, the sparkling things that distract <coughs> Caliban. And I think our own culture diverts us, the material affectations of that acquisition culture, which aren't bad in themselves, but they very, very easily divert us from the underlying realities of the human condition. And they're in contrast to Hebrews 12, Hebrews 11. Remember? We see that amazing metaphorical description of the amphitheatre. In a way, it's a metaphor of time. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the faithful who've lived their time for God in faith, that's who we're looking at, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the, perfect, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, the cross in the present moment of time. And he scorns its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you won't grow weary in the present moment and lie down on the track and build a tent. And you don't lose heart. So we run now, the argument I'm making, we run now with determined focus precisely because we understand it to be not insignificant, but fleeting. Do you see the contrast there? And we run orientated towards an eternal reality with this cloud of witnesses ringing in our ears. Salvation history, going back to Francis' quote, personified with faces and stories and histories. talk about historical method in a lot of detail here. I'm not going to, because I would so much rather talk to you and get you to interact with me. But there's another whole way of linking this to how historians read history, which I think is very significant. Um, but I want to get a little closer to home and talk about an application of this for us as scholars, for those who study. Um, and I, I, I say that because sometimes we don't think of ourselves as scholars, not if we're good ones. Thank you.
but we think of scholars being really, really, really intelligent people. But actually, we're all studying, aren't we? At different stages, we're all studying. And I think what I'm trying to say here is that this issue of finitude has a very particular application for how we go about studying. I want to use this as an example. Because it changes the way we posture ourselves as learners. It changes the way we locate ourselves with regard to knowledge. And I've been really helped in this by a little book that Paul knows well, um, by Paul Griffiths, called The Vice of Curiosity. It's a, it's a really helpful little book. He's written more, but this book encapsulates it. He uses this Augustinian lens to reflect on our desire for knowledge. And he defines curiosity, makes a contrast between the curious man and the studious man. And he defines curiosity as this unremitting, endless desire for more and more new knowledge. And the curious man, Griffiths argues, is driven by this appetite for ownership of knowledge. You can see how those acquisition images play into how he's talking about here. And the studious man, I mean, ultimately, Griffiths is saying there, that instinct towards knowledge as an acquisition drains knowledge of contemplation and delight. It becomes an instrument. And we become unable to worship and participate through our studying. We cease to love with our minds, which we're called to do in Scripture. And the studious man, in contrast, he contemplates what's given. He dwells on what is already known in order to know it better, to know it more deeply, more fully. And this is a different orientation for our purpose and our goal in learning. It's quite difficult to talk about, because actually it's about the posture of our hearts. It's about a sense, a way of being. And it's the difference between knowledge that puffs up and love that builds up. And I, I was reading on the aeroplane, one of my favourite... How am I doing for time? I don't even remember what time we started. Oh, uh, Yes, that, that would be really good. Okay. Um, I'm not going to quote Hannah Moore. There's a cracking, I'll quote one little bit. If we... I do love Hannah Moore. Um, not early 19th century. If we do not guard the mind, it will learn to set more value on original thoughts than devout affections. Isn't that good? If we don't guard our minds, we will be endlessly preoccupied with the new and the original. We won't guard the devotion of our hearts and our orientation towards God. And I do think that we can approach our academic subjects with a new kind of humility, which is part of what I'm talking about here with finitude, where we actually don't place our own vantage point at the centre of the epistemological universe, but we actually approach with humility, recognising that we don't know everything, that we are limited to our vantage point. It's a different way of seeing. And it also relates to humility and listening. That the posture of our hearts becomes one of listening rather than telling. And historical methodology 
from, from, from my own subject is really an exercise in listening to cultures that are qualitatively different from our own. It's a recognition that our own age is unique, other ages are different, and I cannot impose my 21st century categories on the past. Now, I'm saying that because that's an example from my own discipline, but there'll be different disciplines represented in this room. It'll be wonderful to think, what does it mean to approach the actual underlying philosophies of my subject from the point of view of finite humility? How would that change the way we perceive our subjects? So attending to our finitude, it repostures us, it repositions us with humility as scholars, it gives us perspective, and it challenges us to listen. And I want to draw in one final, final thing. I'm being really disciplined because I so want us to talk. How does it influence how we teach? This sense of finitude, how does it actually change how we do church? How does it change how we do family? How does it change the practices that we have in the classroom? And this is where we have to talk about patience. Finitude, humility, listening, all of them require patience. I think my point here is patience is not a postmodern virtue. All the weight of everything I've been saying, the whole weight of the society that we live in, the full weight of the technologies of our society, it's pressing us, you can imagine it visually, it's pressing us into immediacy. It's pressing us into rapidity. The technologies that we have to navigate themselves have a tyrannical pressure about them. And it's pushing us into the moment. And the executive summary, the soundbite, these are becoming the nub or the crux of the issue. They're becoming the substance of the matter rather than any kind of body of research that might lie under those. We've talked about fabricated news here as well because I think it's related. Immediacy is not only a functional requirement of our society, but it's a mentality that is rapidly eroding our capacity to wait for anything. And glancing at a topic replaces dwelling in material. Rapid coverage replaces hard work of struggling to understand something. And we forget, I think, that access to knowledge is not synonymous with learning itself. Our availability to knowledge, the availability of knowledge, doesn't mean the instant transformation of our consciousness. As a teacher, what that means is, what would it be like if I got people to read less, not more? What would it mean... <coughs> Best example here, I've been reading an art historian on this who's really interesting, called Jennifer Roberts. She, she talks about an assignment she sets for her students where they have to sit and look at one painting for three hours. That's the assignment. Now, that is a long time. <laughs> You know how when you're quiet for two minutes in church, it feels really long? Three hours looking at one painting. And she's making an argument there that actually the pace of learning is part of the learning itself. And how as teachers do we pace learning 
in such a way that we actually cultivate patience and persistence as part of what we're actually teaching in the classroom. And this is so important because when I'm teaching history, I'm not only teaching my students how to imagine other times and reminding them that other times are different from our own, but actually I'm also teaching them to encounter other kinds of temporalities, cultures that have a different perception of time to my own, cultures that knew what it was like to wait a year when you write to your bishop when you're in New Zealand to hear back from him how to deal with a pastoral situation. And then it takes another year for his letter to come back. And, and the, the, that kind of temporality, that sense of time, is different in other cultures. And how do we actually teach that in a culture when immediacy is the only way we can imagine and perceive? So what I'm trying to say is that actually, in the postmodern classroom, patience is a skill that we have to teach and not assume. It's something we have to model and not simply believe it. it'll happen, a virtue that we take for granted. That's really all I want to say. Maybe tonight, if you like, Read Psalm 90. Oh, I love that psalm. Establish the work of our hands. This extraordinary psalm about being our dwelling place throughout generations. And I think it encapsulates what I'm trying to say. But I want to stop talking now so we can have a conversation genuinely about this material. So if you just raise your hand, uh, and we'll begin. I'll, I'll begin with just a question, uh, maybe more of an observation, uh, about how at odds the way we've arranged our educational institutions are to this beautiful vision of education and learning that you're presenting. I'm wondering, um, on the one hand, I, I think it, it calls us to restructure a lot of how we think about scholarship. Um, tenure, um, teaching, classroom, student work, things like this. Um, for many of us, we'll be walking into education institutions where we don't get to decide what they look like, Absolutely. what the demands are. Yeah. I wonder if you might say something about how to live with um, accepting our finitude uh, in terms of our work and being okay with that learning to deal with the pressures to produce and consume more academically. Um, and if you have yourself have learned anything about, about coming to that kind of finitude when the demands are so great on your productivity uh, and consumption mm -hmm. as a scholar. Mm -hmm. Is it okay if I sit down? Can you still hear me okay? I mean, in a way, how we conduct ourselves in relation to our perception of time is like any other aspect of being in the world and not of it. It's that missional dilemma between the now and the not yet. How do we live as the people of God rooted in a different story about reality? And, and even the way we do education is going to involve us in that almost dialectic of the kingdom. And I think then I want to go straight back to the book of Daniel, 
where you have this extraordinary example, the whole book, of living in a culture and knowing exactly where to draw the line in the sand, where the identity points are threatened, where we go with the culture, we advise it, we participate in it, but where do we draw lines? And that is so intimately related to our own walk by the Spirit in our relationship with God. So just to give a few examples uh, from, from my own life, navigating publishing output. I, I, I got my fellowship in Oxford just as our second daughter was born. And I looked at my colleagues with utter jealousy because they didn't have children. And I thought, how, how on earth am I meant to do what's expected of me and actually be sleep deprived and raise a family? And during that period, I had to learn where are the lines in the sand where I actually have to say, no, I'm not going to have the same output level, or no, I won't be there. And the times when actually I did need to be there. And then it was a matter of, Lord, I have to trust that somehow I will be able to make bricks without straw in the amount of time that I have. And I think that's part of our faith. The Sabbath itself is time. It's resting in the finished work of God and not frantically doing it ourselves. So, I mean, as we meditate on Sabbath, <coughs> it's related to this idea of finitude as well. So it's Sabbath living. Does, does that make yeah. sense? You, you were talking about um, infinite options and um, our finitude. Um, with all that, would you say that postmodern mm. society is set itself up and set ourselves up as being God and being infinite like God when we really aren't and only God is? you get that sense from what I'm saying? Do you, do you think that's true yeah. of Pokemon Cup? Yeah. yeah. And I think we see it when we, when we challenge the idea of unlimited choice. Um, and that can happen in a number of different ways. The book that I wrote about prenatal ethics was about choice and about the dilemmas of choice when you actually have uh, a pregnancy that will lead in the to the death of a child, which was our situation. And there, your choice is to have a termination. What does, it, what does it actually mean when you challenge that choice? And at those points, you find that the culture is pretty vicious about its insistence on unlimited choice. And then you begin to see that there's a bit of an ideology behind it, maybe a little bit of an idol behind it. And the book of Daniel is great there, <laughs> setting itself up in, in, as an idol. So we're into the realm of confronting the very heart of some of the sort of principalities and powers. I don't really understand what that phrase means. But we kick back against our culture by living counterculturally and by worshipping the living God who holds all of reality together and not the fleeting and the immediate. Yeah. So would you say that there are a different set of limits that our culture actually has to enforce in order to try to avoid facing that definitive. And, you, ha you have to explain. I think that's a profound well, idea, and I don't I, I think that's that. what I just heard you saying. I was mm -hmm. just trying to rephrase it. 
Well, it seemed as though you were giving an example of the way in which defending the sense of freedom of being able to make whatever choices, of not being limited, not being finite creatures, um, requires the culture to set and enforce some limits. Yes. Uh, but they might be a different set of limits. Yes. Oh, my goodness. That is so interesting, because now you're getting into a relationship between political philosophy and finitude, which is something I'm thinking about a lot. Because should a culture enforce finitude? Should a culture euthanize? That's an enforcement of physical limitation. So you have to be really... This is very encompassing when you really push it to some of its ethical conclusions. Where does the regulation of time lie? Who gets to regulate time itself? Who gets to regulate human finitude? Does anybody get to regulate that? How do we navigate human regulation of that and our worship of God and his regulation of it in creation? So I think your question is really, really complicated. Because <laughs> it can lead us into lots of different, lots of different directions. Um, I, I'm assuming that our culture works on the principle of unlimited freedom, but actually that is a deeply deceptive language because our culture is perhaps more capable of coercion at this point in human history than at any previous period of time. And so you've got a language of unlimited but a reality of limitation. Now, arguably, people have very little political agency, even though we have a language of unlimited freedom. So there is a dichotomy there, and it's a deceptive dichotomy. And how do we navigate that as Christians? How do we unmask the realities of our culture? How do we navigate the stories we tell ourselves? Yeah. Right, I have a question uh, about... Uh, now about to, it, it relates to Friedrich Nietzsche in his work, uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which is a very difficult work to interpret, so if I'm interpreting this wrong, I apologize in advance. You assume that I, of course, understand it. We <laughs> 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 didn't talk about it. Uh, okay, so he uh, mentions a little bit, or the character Zarathustra talks um, and kind of uh, laments about the past. Um, and he talks about this spirit of revenge, which is a kind of sickness within us. Um, and he laments for a while um, about how he wishes he could have the ability to uh, almost causally interact with the past to change the past. Yeah. Um, and it would be a power that you know would be beyond God, he thinks. That would be the ultimate um, thing, would be able to change the past because of this that because of this phenomenon where humans, we have such a strong sense of regret over certain things that either we have chosen to do or things that have been done to us, uh, that we look at the past um, and the finite amount of time that we've had with a spirit of revenge, and yes. we we hate time, yes. and we we hate the past, and we wish that we could do something to almost get even with it and enact our vengeance upon it. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that kind of spirit of revenge or that, that hatred of time? Well, and it, 
it, it, you just explained so brilliantly why Nietzsche, for example, would be very closely linked in many writings with extreme postmodern philosophy. That the kind of nihilism route that I'm talking about is very present there in Nietzsche's philosophy. Um, I, I, I think that's profoundly important. Um, the idea that um, we militate against the past. That, that, I don't know what else to say about Nietzsche, except I think that his way of seeing time doesn't allow for the possibility that time has any meaning that's redemptive. That somehow history has no overarching redemptive art. He's, a, he's a, an interesting philosopher to be reading right now, because I think he's very, he's very prophetic in the period he's writing. He's anticipating so much of what's happening in our own philosophical world, I think, at the moment. Yeah. And the resurgence of hedonism that we see closely linked, philosophically <coughs> linked to postmodernity as well. Thank you for bringing that Yes, yes. Um, I was thinking about when I was talking about time and the realization that it's finite and how comfortable that makes so many people in our culture. Um, but inevitably, when you confront that, you're faced with the problem of longing. Yeah. And, and I was thinking about how if we're going to try to equip people and teach them to think about time as being finite and their time on Earth as being very carefully crafted in terms of what they can and cannot do, how you deal with that problem of longing. Because I, I, yeah. one, of, one of the things that when I think about this, I think of a movie about that speed. But um, but one of the things is you, you're presented with characters in that film who have been given so many different giftings and potential lives that they could have lived, but they made choices and it closed some of those doors or you know, just the, just through living you realize that there are things that you're passionate about that you want to do, but the reality is the world can't equip those things. Um, you can't do them because of you know, time or limitations or physical disabilities or financial pressures, whatever. Um, and so we're faced with people who are desperately longing for things, maybe on one hand longing for God and that centering, but also longing for greater purpose and for to have that meaningful existence. And I wonder what you thought about how do we help people cope with longing? Oh, I just love it that you drew that word in. It's just a, such a helpful word and it's going to open up other ways of thinking, uh, more ways of thinking about this as well. I mean, I, I always want to ask some of you guys who are in living the life of pastoral care, how do we deal with longing in our society? How, how does postmodernity deal with longing? And what do we do with longing in the church? What is longing? I'm wondering whether I can draw you in in this point into commenting on this and in relation to your pastoral work really. Is that a fair question? I, I might just offer a comment. I mean, uh, it reminds me of um, this, the, the central theme of uh, Augustine's Confessions being um, uh, different kinds of longing and how he narrates a, a life that's constituted by uh, a number of different infinite longings. And uh, Grace being essentially for Augustine uh, a kind of right ordering of longings 
so that uh, rather than, than to be implemented, uh, all longings can, can in a sense be ordered to God to kind of fuel yes. this desire for God in the Anderson. Yes. So, I think there may be something a little wrong with us if we have lives that don't have longing in them. We have gratitude and contentment, but also the very nature of being here. We long for God, and actually we need more longing, not less, and learn to live with the tension of longing. And it draws us into the infinite. It, the, I mean, we, just, we can read... Bernard of Claveau on that, so powerfully, how longing itself draws us towards God. And that's a, one of the issues I'm trying to think through in relation to, to gender and some of the deep complexity around human sexuality and longing. And what, what does that mean? How do we deal with that in the church? I'm really glad you brought that word in. It's really helpful. A hope deferred. It reminds me of how modern seminaries don't have instruction in ascetics. Go on. <laughs> they teach church history, they teach theology, they teach scripture, they teach Greek, they teach Hebrew, but they don't teach prayer. And that's lamentable. Because yes. the center of pastoral practice should be prayer. Yes. And it, it seems that there's this grabbing after acquisition and that uh, there's not an exemplification of, of rest yes. within this frenetic environment that is constantly going. Yes. And it, it creates a certain type of pastor um, that I don't think is particularly effective. A kind of activism. Yes. yes. I think putting prayer there is really, really, really helpful when we, when we think about prayer and its relationship to finitude, and how, how the Psalms lament and long and point towards and own. I mean, prayer itself as a practice of living in time, and how that reframes our existence. That's the Hannah Moore stuff that I didn't read. She's writing about prayer at the very end of her life, as an old woman reflecting back on prayer. And one of the things she's saying there is that prayer itself trains our minds from this restless desire for the new. And it centers us so that the devotions of our minds and the devotions of our hearts are centered on Christ. And that we love God with the integrated heart and mind. And <coughs> in prayer that that happens. That we're, we're transformed through participation and relationship with God. Yeah. I think pastorally a lot of engaging with longing at least lately, seems to be thinking about lament and giving people permission to lament and saying, no, actually that's part of prayer. Yes. Um, and I've heard people and read people talking about this a little bit, but it, it seems to be a whole aspect of biblical prayer that's been set aside or maybe isn't culturally permitted because, well, <coughs> lament comes from longing and finitude and loss and things that we don't want to have. We see as negative, have, yes. Right, yes. but I, I read this incredible... Sorry, I'm pulling the book out. This is good. <laughs> I, I read this incredible paragraph in this interview with Anthony Bloom. It's in his book, Beginning to Pray. Um, I've been thinking about this for a couple of days, and I haven't quite thought through it yet. 
but he says, the day when God is absent, when he is silent, that is the beginning of prayer. Not when we have a lot to say, but when we say to God, I can't live without you. Why are you so cruel, so silent? This knowledge that we must find or die, that makes us break through to the place where we are in the presence. If we listen to what our hearts know of love and longing, and are never afraid of despair, we find that victory is always there at the other side of it. That's wonderful. That's such a helpful quote. Um, could we... I have got some a, a little handout bibliography which I managed to completely forget to bring, but could we add that quote to that, and then those that want to, could we could circulate that around, and we could add some of these words, longing and prayer, and that opens up how we're beginning to think about the connections between, between these Maybe one more question. Yeah. I'm not sure I've got this well formulated. It's I wonder about community yeah. and finitude. If I'm if I'm going to combat my own desire to be free of my finitude, and I I'm going to need a community. Yeah. But even the, the, the anchoring of myself in community is at some level to yes. embrace finitude because I limit my options yes. thereby. Yes, I, I'm so glad that you said that because I, I, I thought, I, I cut quite a lot of the talks, like this, is, this is the essence of it. But what about the Benedictine vow of stability? How does that, that kind of place vow relate to this notion of finitude and temporality. And that there's something in that for us, where you unconditionally give your time to belonging in a community. Just as one unconditionally gives oneself to another person in the covenant of marriage. What would it look like for communities to have... To be places where we cannot avoid ourselves. Because identity is a gift that is given in community. And actually it's our communities that call forth from us the identities that God, the Creator, has placed there. We do that for one another in community. As we live lives together in relationship to Christ. And as we live our lives participating together in the sacraments. That's an extraordinary mystery. But we are so threatened by the, the, the mobility, the physical mobility of our communities. And I don't know what we do with that. But I do think some people may, in fact, need to make vows of stability in their hearts as part of their own discipleship in Christ. And certainly, maybe if it's only a vow of stability for one month to be in a place, there's a posture of commitment to community which is different from the idea of the transitory and the downloading of the fulfillment of my needs for <coughs> community. It, it, we can reposture ourselves. But maybe sometimes we have to limit our choices by saying, no, this is the place to which I'm called and these are the people that I'm going to do life with. And it is limiting, very countercultural. What would it look like for us to recover that? 
I'm so glad you brought it in because I think it's deeply related. That's a great note to, to conclude on. Um, thank you for these really challenging and wonderful words. Um, would you thank me and join me in thanking Professor <laughs> Williams? Just a, a couple of things, though. Um, uh, Professor Williams has compiled, uh, if I understand right, a bibliography yes, I have, I have. Uh, to go with this lecture. With so the quotes and all of that stuff. Yeah. We'll send that around. Um, yeah people on the Anglican Student Ministries email list. But if you're not on that, please uh, uh, talk to us and we'll get you on that. And second is that the uh, lecture this Friday uh, is at the Armstrong Browning Library at 3.30. Uh, so we hope that you'll join us uh, for that. Thanks for coming, y'all. Have a good night. <laughs>